Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, please open to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 11. And we will stand in a moment and read verses 22 through 26. Actually, we'll do verses 20 through 26. And so would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Beginning at verse 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Please be seated. A very difficult passage of Scripture, so let's skip it and let's turn to Psalm 23. <laughs> Only a few verses for this morning's consideration. We'll start in verse 22. But as background, of course, uh, Jesus had come into the city <clears throat> in the morning, the day before. He saw a fig tree with leaves which promised to have fruit. When he got to the tree, there was no fruit, and he cursed that tree. Of course, it was uh, a parable. He was, it, the tree spoke of Israel. Israel at that time had the leaves, uh, the outside appearance in their religion, but they had no fruit because they were not obedient. They could not even recognize their own Messiah in the presence of a multitude of proofs that he was indeed the Messiah. And then the next morning, they come out, and Peter is the one that makes his observation known. Now, the Lord then takes an opportunity to school them. Now, some of you may not be aware about how homeschooling moms work. The way they work is, if the kids are going out to, let's just say, run around in the open field, when they pull up, the mom says... Okay, now this is a field. Can anyone spell field for me? And it's everything is a classroom. And the kids can't catch a break. So Christ is doing that. That's where they get it from. Look, the fig tree, it's cur- it withered. Well, now, here comes the lesson. Well, we're grateful for that. But it is a humorous little side to, to life. It's critical, of course. It's very important. Uh, both the mom schooling the children... And, of course, the Lord schooling his disciples and us. And so we look at verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Now, this morning's message is entitled, Trust God. That's what that means. Trust God. It's a very fundamental principle of our faith. When you cannot remember Bible verses and what the pastor taught on, Just trust God. We default to that. Satan is hoping we do not do this. 
that we trust something else. Now, there may be other things involved, of course. But before this tree died, there was the death of faith in the nation. And that's what he's commenting on. There were those that were rejecting him, and they had no grounds to reject him. When they died, those who rejected Christ during his lifetime there in Israel, and they stood before God, there's no reason they could give for, for not receiving him. And therefore, they died in their sins. When he said to his disciples, have faith in God, trust God. He wasn't saying, this is how you kill a tree. You just trust God. You can kill any tree you want. Of course, that's not the lesson. Destroying fig trees is not something that we're interested in. But the secret for living in such a way that destruction is not necessary through judgment from God is by faith. If you want to make judgment unnecessary in your life, trust the Lord, obey the Lord, walk with him. Active faith without pretense. There it is. Without pretense. Or I'll put it this way. Without pretending. Uh, That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were pretending to be believers. And they were dragging with them a whole nation of people who also pretended to be believers. Of course, many did turn to Christ after seeing the miracles. Many saw the miracles and still turned later. Look at Judas Iscariot. Active faith is what catches God's attention. I know we're all interested in getting to that verse about anything you ask. Well... (laughs) we'll get to it. And so, that fig tree, again, promised fruit, did not deliver. That generation promised the truth of the God of Moses, the God of Abraham. They did not deliver. They preached Messiah. And when it came to receiving their Messiah, they did not because he did not conform to their view of religion. And to this day, there are those people that refuse Christ for not conforming to their views of religion or humanity or life or something else. But the believer submits. The believer surrenders and becomes a slave of Christ, willful slave, a bondservant. Faith is a big deal. It's a big deal because of what it does. It's potential. It is God's currency on earth. It's money to God, spiritual money. It buys things, it gets things done in the spiritual realm as money would in the physical realm. Faith, that is what unlocks the forces of heaven that overcomes the work of Satan. We we know this, but it does still help to hear it. Sometimes I'll listen to a a Chuck Smith uh, CD or teaching on something, and he'll be saying something very basic to the faith, and it's just... A joy to listen to it, just to hear it. It doesn't always have to be something new and something profound. It can be a fresh experience in the existing things, in things that I'm very familiar with. Ultimately, faith kills death. In the end, for the believer, faith kills death because it rules out lies about God. It it precludes them. Not interested. Too bad Eve didn't have that in the garden, right? What would have happened if she said, you know what? Shut up. (laughs) Lies about God brought death to creation. Truth 
about God restores eternal life to man. John's Gospel, chapter 7, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said. Very, very important. That's why we do all the cross-references. That's the first and the second witness to what God is saying. So that the context is reinforced by other areas of Scripture with like context. And so Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you come to a sermon that I am preaching, if you get nothing else out of it, you will get the Scripture. And they will speak for themselves. There are unseen facts about God and his creation which only faith unveils. And that's what he's saying. You need to trust God. This is a faith issue. Seems like he's not addressing what Peter is saying, but he most certainly is. He's taking the opportunity to go beyond what Peter's observations were concerning the tree. The secret of Abraham's life can be summed up in a single short sentence. He trusted God. That's Abraham. Romans chapter 3. What does the scripture say, Paul? See, Paul, let's, let's go to the Bible. That is our source of authority for how we think, what we believe, and how we behave, and where we are going, and where we are not going. And so Paul says in Romans 4, verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He trusted God. He sided with God. That's what faith is. We've got to hear it in different ways, different forms. Because we become so used to that word faith, it loses its punch sometimes. Especially when we're under attack. And trusting God while overcoming some attack, that's one thing. But to trust God while being overcome is another thing. We are expected to do both. And Jesus gave us that example. They mocked him while he hung on the tree. He trusted in God. That's what they said. He's telling his disciples, have faith in God, trust God. There he is hanging on the tree, dying, and they come by mocking him, Matthew 27, verse 43, and this is what they said. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. You can hear the sneer. You can see the fangs sticking out as they said these things without basis. They had no reason to side against him. He said he's the son of God. Well, maybe he is. No, he can't be. He doesn't conform to our understanding. Never mind the facts. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. And of course, we don't always know why God allows what he does allow or disallows. But we know him enough to say, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him no matter what. And that's what Christ is saying. He's get to the bottom line. See this cursed fig tree? That could be your life. But if you trust God, in the end, you won't be cursed. We'll come to more of this. Verse 23. For as surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now, if you read that through carnal eyes, you're going to end up saying, oh, that's not true. 
You might not verbalize it, but you're going to think it. But if you look at it spiritually, you're going to say that is absolutely true. Mountain here, well, first off, he says, assuredly, I'm telling you, this is it. Mountain is metaphor for something that is otherwise immovable, an immovable difficulty in your life, something in your life that will not move like a mountain. It was a common metaphor. When he said this, they'd likely heard this before in some synagogue teaching or some just discussion somewhere. It was that common. Almost a proverb. In rabbinic use, they used it as hyperbole. Things impossible. It's a mountain, but God can move it. And the prophets spoke of this very thing. We, we to this day, sing songs. Psalm 97, verse 5. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of Yahweh, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The psalmist meant those immovable problems. He also said, yeah, if God wanted to melt the real mountains, he could do that too. And we're glad he doesn't. Uh, before I, well, Zechariah 4, you know, that not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When Zechariah says this, the Jews are trying to rebuild their temple and they're having so many problems. And God raises up Zechariah and Haggai and they come along and Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Then he says immediately after that, who are you? Oh, great mountain. Who are you, this, this immovable problem? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So he's saying this is a problem. It's not a problem for God. But in the end, my man, Zerubbabel, will prevail. And I'm going to flatten this thing that's an obstacle. And grace will prevail. And so, it was a common metaphor to the rabbis because it was a metaphor in the scripture from the prophets. And so, in this metaphorical sense, this can be done. Some immovable problem in your life can be removed through, pray, pr through prayer, built on faith, without doubting. How many immovable difficulties have been removed in unsaved souls. People who you said, they're never going to get saved. They are so messed up. They're so far out there. They are so into darkness, they will never get saved. Then they get saved. Some of them become pastors. That was an immovable mountain. What happened? I Personally, I, don't be, I believe New Testament believers somebody's praying for them before they get saved. I can't prove that. I can say it's true in my own life. My mother and my sister were praying for me, and I was deep in darkness, and God saved me. I was an immovable mountain. I must have broke my mom's heart time and time again. And yet, faith prevails. Moving the immovable by faith. If God wanted you to move a mountain into the sea, it would be done by doubtless faith, but he really doesn't have a need to do that. He put the mountains there to keep us away from each other. <laughs> mountains and rivers. 
And so here his answer doesn't seem to have anything to do with Peter's observation about the fig tree. But he is using the whole incident to underline the critical importance of faith. Faith removes otherwise immovable obstacles in time. How much time? You'll find out. Keep the faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's what he says. John was there when Jesus gave this teaching. John was there when he was persecuted, when John was persecuted and put on the Isle of Patmos and other persecutions that he experienced. John was there when word came that they killed James, his brother, with the sword, that he's dead. He knows something about facing immovable obstacles. And God is saying here in Christ, faith gets the job done. It's very easy to understand. It's very painful to live out because of time. You notice he doesn't say how fast he can move that mountain. If you have faith without doubting, you can say to that mountain, be uprooted and move it to the sea. But he doesn't tell you it might take 10 years. It doesn't say it to be instantly. We read it that way because we want it that way. But faith, even though small, it is what the potential that is within it that makes the difference. Faith does not have to be big. It has to be life-producing. It has to get the believer from one port to another port, from one harbor to another harbor. Or from one battlefield to heaven. That's what faith has to do. do, has to do. That's what it does. And so when Jesus gave his parable, you got faith like a mustard seed. It's not about being big. It's about having life. That seed produces life. That's what a seed does. And so he says here, again, in verse 23, but but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. (laughs) Who would be dumb enough to say anything? I can have anything I want. I can have all the Twizzlers I want if I just have faith. (laughs) Prayer has rules. Surprise. Who gets to say... A mountain can be removed, this one or that one, and where it is to be moved to. Who has that say-so? You think God of the universe is going to entrust anybody with that? I mean, Daniel wasn't entrusted with that. Joseph, and we'll come to them in a moment. Is it you or is it someone else or is it God? Who decides what immovable objects get moved, when they get moved, and where they get moved to, and why? Only faith can answer it. Okay. Who owns my faith? Is it me? Is it God? Who owns my faith? This is important. I need to know ownership. It disturbed King David that the Ark of the Covenant, the presence, the visible presence of God, not the visible or the visage of God, not the face of God, but his presence was symbolized with the Ark of the Covenant. And it bugged David. We got it to Jerusalem. It's under a tent. I'm living in this palace as king. And this is not right. 
So he says this to the prophet Nathan, that he wants to do something about this. Here's what Nathan said. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Well, there's some truth in that. Nathan was going to get corrected. That night, Nathan came back to David. It was that night God came to Nathan and said, listen, you goofed. He didn't say it like that. He's too gentle. But David could not build the house of God. First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 4. Go tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. But it was not an abrupt no. God took so much care explaining his reasons to David, much love and promise. He said, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to take care of you. And it's, it's put in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. It's spread out a little bit to, to get more of the story. And as you read it, you say, look at that. God was so gentle with David and Nathan. But David, couldn't he not say back to Nathan, well, it was my idea. I came up with this plan to build a house for God. How can he say no to me? It's not his idea. But he could not. David would never say such a silly thing. Because he knew his faith belonged to God. He writes about this. Psalm 16. Oh, my soul. You have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. David is saying anything good in me. Like Jerusalem, all the springs are found in Yahweh. He is the source of life and relief. So Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's ownership. The author owns it. In fact, we have all these copyright laws to demonstrate that the author owns it. Unless you be guilty of infringement. True faith is the property of God. And so Paul says, be diligent to show yourself approved unto God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, but works hard. Be aggressive when it comes to hard work. And so we see the power in this, these verses that say to us throughout the scripture, your faith belongs to God. Before you go moving, shoving mountains out of the way, understand this faith that is to get that job done is not yours. You are part of the process, but it's not yours. His word is such a lamp, but it is, uh, the lamp is not the flame. We're not sorcerers is what I'm saying. Psalm 119, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. He said, through your teachings, through the rules you set out for me, the precepts, the rules, I get understanding. And he says, I hate every false way. Because those false ways hurt people. That's why. You find a a pretentious or a false Christian, one that is pretending to be one, you know somebody's going to get hurt. I've said this before. As as a child watching war movies, whenever the the bad guys, usually the the Nazi troops, whenever they dressed up like the good guys, you knew one of your favorite actors was going to get killed in the movie. (laughs) And it is that, that is the truth in life. It's a parallel there. When Satan dresses up like a believer, somebody's going to get hurt. And so we look to have discernment. Otherwise, who needs discernment? Why does God give discernment? So we can figure out what's going on spiritually. We can look beyond what's in front of our eyeballs and see through the eyes of faith. 
Luke's gospel. Listen to this. Because the false ways lead to destruction. We get that. And there are many who go in by it. The true way through faith goes to heaven. In Christ, again, the center of the lesson is this tree is destroyed because it made a promise it couldn't keep as emblematic of Israel. I don't want you to be this way. If you're a Christian, you need to live like one. At least pursue it. And by faith, you will be the last man standing in heaven after earth. Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. This is Lazarus, the beggar. The dogs licked his sores. But he was a righteous man. How did he get that way? The Bible doesn't tell us. It could be a whole bunch of things. He could have had a disaster, a catastrophe in his life. He could have become a drunk. Who knows what happened to Lazarus? Something happened. But one thing that did not happen is he did not go to hell. Luke chapter 16, verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. You see that stark contrast? One carried by the angels, the other buried. Just put in the dirt. Profound lesson for us. Trust God. You want the pastor to come up and say, you know why you don't get the things you don't the things you want and you don't get them? Because you don't have enough faith. Well, I'm not saying that. That's just too easy. It's too easy to blame a person. We're at war in this life. There are, there are forces that are contesting every single step we try to make forward for the king. And we're not supposed to be surprised by these things. I'm shocked sometimes when Christians see evil getting away with evil. That's what evil does. If it wasn't getting away with evil, there'd be no evil. Our response is to be just that. What is our response? How are we going to do? Well, I'm going to preach anyway. Verse 24, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. I repeat, prayer has rules. He most certainly is not saying you ask anything. And you'll just get it. You say, but that's what he said. But that's not what he means. Keep the context to the context of all scripture and reality and how Christ conducted himself. And the next verse has one of those rules where I'll just give you an example. He says, if you don't forgive, then you won't be forgiven. Don't expect your prayers to be answered. That's a rule that belongs to prayer. This Statement in verse 24 subsumes that the sovereignty of God is embraced by the believer. Like in Gethsemane, when Jesus Christ said, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, what you want. What he is also saying here in verse 24 is that there is no limit to the power of a faithful prayer. If it be God's will. However, if it is God's will and no one prays it, will it get done? And many times, no. Negligence. How can it get done? I mean, you go to find, find a church where God wants to work, but nobody's letting him work. He'd be, behold, I stand outside. I'm knocking on the door because I want to get inside and do stuff through this church. But I can't. And because I can't, I'm nauseated. It's the church at Laodicea. 
He tells the church of Sardis, you've got leaves. You've got no fruit. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. He says to the church at Ephesus, you've got all these things going on. They're good things. But you lost your love for me. There are people in the world that reject me. They do things too. Why are you acting like them? Those seven letters are quite, I mean, seven, seven letters of seven churches are quite profound. He tells the pastor of that church to, to the angel of the church. That's the pastor. There's not some angelic being. That's the messenger of the church. Because it rolls from the pulpit out. That's how God set it up. It doesn't exclude you. It doesn't devalue your devotional time, your service. It includes you, but it sets rules for us. He says, if you don't get this right, I'm going to take your lampstand. That will leave you in darkness. And you don't want that. And so, coming back to Jesus when he says, therefore I say to you, which is built on so many other things, uh, this means that there's so much power available in prayer, and we know it's true. And because you don't see your prayers answered instantly, doesn't mean the war is not taking place. Hebrews eleven thirty nine. All these having obtained a good testimony through faith. That's what I want. I, when I finally leave this life, I want to have left this life with a good testimony through faith. And then he says. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They died before they saw their mountains moved, some of them. But ultimately, they saw them all move when they got to heaven. And so we get the impression that moving a mountain, again, will not take seconds. If we don't doubt, it's a long ride, whether we doubt or not. It took Joseph years, it took David years to escape those immovable problems in their lives. Meanwhile, God was doing invaluable work in the lives of others. For example, Joseph's brothers, they weren't ready. I mean, these guys were cold. They sold their own brother. Some of them wanted to just kill him. Just because they didn't like, you know, his, his words, because he was a little naive. Hey, I had a dream. I'm better than all of you. I mean, who's that? Well, let's kill him for that. By the time he, those men get to him years later, a decade later, more, he has to vet them. He has to see if these guys have changed or not. And he goes through some painstaking stuff to get to that conclusion. But God had been working in them through their guilt. How many times did they get up out of their tent and walk out and say, man, I just, we shouldn't have done that. You never know what God is doing in the lives of others. What's he supposed to do? Give us a list and then update it? We trust God. That's what we do because it makes destruction from judgment not necessary. And there are rules, as I've mentioned, and, and don't forget, I, I would strongly suggest you don't forget, there are those that have problems with a church that has rules. Therefore, they're going to have problems with faith, too. You can't get away from them. Rules exist to counter bad ideas, bad people, sin, all sorts of junk. And everybody has them. And it's remarkable how many people want to see you drop your rules while they keep their rules. 
Well, it doesn't work that way. And if it doesn't, they get upset. But let's go back to this, if you ask for it, you get it kind of thought. What about Noah and Moses and Samuel and Job and Daniel? Could they get anything they wanted? Just because, did they lack faith? God held these men in such high esteem that after their deaths, God told other prophets to use their names to tell the people how special their prayers were, but how limited their prayers were. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to me, now you can't challenge Jeremiah. I mean, this was an extraordinary prophet. Yahweh said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. God is saying those powerful men of prayer, Moses and Samuel, you know, Samuel, powerful man of prayer. God says, even if they prayed with all the faith they had, my will would not be to answer their prayer. So what do we get out of that? Yeah, we get just that, that when we pray, it's God's will, not ours. No matter how much we insist or demand, we can't name it and claim it, which is a hellish thought. How dare you go to God and say, I named it, give it up. So I smack you across your mouth to stop you from making such foolish prayers. This is the difference between praying and saying, God, I believe you. Nevertheless, your will be done. Verse 14 of Ezekiel 14. Now Ezekiel gets his turn to name some warriors of the faith. Even if these men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, the city, they would, they would deliver only themselves... By their righteousness, says the Lord God. God is saying, those men are righteous. And by their prayers, they would be delivered. But their prayer would be limited to themselves. Abraham exhibited this when he prayed for Sodom. God listened to God when it tolerated him, which is such a lesson. God is saying, I, I don't mind talking to you in prayer. I don't mind going back. and I don't mind you laying it out for me. But in the end... The terms will be set, and I will set them. Abraham did not set the terms. He thought he was making progress. God knew where this was going. And God drew a line at 10. Okay, fine, enough of this. 10, if you find 10, I'll spare the city. We couldn't find 10. And God knew that. So he ended the conversation before Abraham got to five. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in that. There's a great lesson in that. God, God you're not going to outmove him. He's very, and this is the big part of what we're saying. God has a personality, a character. He is, it is him we're after. It is Jesus Christ, the person, not the words, the person. I don't, you can take my Bible away, just don't take Jesus from me. You see what I mean? He's everything. Of course, we use the Bible to learn him. It's Christ who we're after in prayer. We're after him. Lord, what do you want? And he doesn't always open the sky up and say, I would like this. I don't know if he is a baritone or not. But <laughs> verse Ezekiel again, chapter 14, verse 20. It's repeated, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says Yahweh God, or the Lord Yahweh, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves, 
by their righteousness. It's profound. There's a big part of the meeting, meaning about prayer and its power through faith. The rules, of course. The metaphors are critical for getting us to understand the victories that will come our way. The fact that you're sitting listening to God's word is evidence that God answers prayer. And if we stop looking to change the landscape by moving mountains and focus on being faithful to the death and finding the will of God, which is really what Christ is saying, find that will of God and line up with it. Righteousness comes through faith. And righteousness is the adjusted life to God, to his truth. There are many truths. If you buy a bicycle that comes with a manual of how to build it, that's truth according to the building the bicycle. But there's the truth of God, the spiritual truths. So you get into a car that's not yours. And you're going to drive this car. And the seat is not right. You have to adjust the seat. That's what righteousness does. It adjusts itself so that it can be led by God. It can be used by God. Righteousness is the life adjusted to God, as found in the Scripture. And if faith, which comes with righteousness... If it is valued by God as being such a big thing, as Jesus says, have faith in God, trust God. It's valued by the believer. If that is true, then it becomes, by default, you could say instantly, automatically, by default, faith becomes a high-valued target for Satan. Why, why is it that many, many Christians are more problematic in church, and in life than many unbelievers. Why is that? I mean, I used to be a shop steward on large construction sites with many men that were, they were rank pagans and heathens, yet they were easier to manage many times than Christians. You could go up to them, you could reason with them. Not every time. I mean, there were those that were just, you know, looking for a fight. And there are Christians like that. Why, why is this? Well, one is we expect more from Christians, but we fail to remember Christians are also sinners, saved by grace, but sinners. They're defective. The other is they are prized targets of Satan, Satan messing with them. They, still, they remain Christians. They can remain useful, but it's still getting messed with on spiritual matters more than the world. And so, it's a, not a large faith we're looking for, but it's a living faith. And this is, the, again, the only destructive miracle of Christ targeting this faithless tree, this fruitless tree. It was a big deal to Jesus. It was a big deal to Peter. It's a big deal to God. And it's a big deal to our spiritual enemy. And it's a big deal to a serious believer. It is a very big deal. So a serious believer can look at that verse and say, I don't understand it. I don't understand what's being said here because I can't prove this in my life. But I have enough of you, Lord Jesus, to trust you. You don't have to answer this for me. I'd like you to because I'd like to know everything. 
I like to be smarter than everybody else, too, I should add. Is there anybody else who wants to be dumber than everybody else? Please raise your hand. <laughs> All right, a little sleepy. Let's speed it up. <laughs> this destructive act, incidentally, was on the way to a reconstructive act. This is his last week on earth. I mean, technically, he doesn't, he doesn't die. They don't kill him. He, he, he departs this life. That the technical side. But from the human perspective, of course, they, they murdered him in public. But this is part of the process towards redemption. This is the Passion Week. We're paying attention to everything he says and everything he does in a heightened way. We've been doing it from the beginning, but even more so as he's approaching the cross on our behalf. Man suffered a great spiritual and moral catastrophe. Original sin. Mankind is visibly marred. You pick up a paper, a newspaper, or go online, however you do it, and you cannot escape it. You can see it. It's right there. Spiritually, man is deformed. Morally, he is defective and visibly marred. When Jeremiah finally saw the ruins of Jerusalem that he had been prophesying about for years, he lamented over it. We have the Book of Lamentations. And what he said about Jerusalem can be said about mankind. This is what he says, Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations, the princes among the provinces, has become a slave. He starts out his lamentation saying, this is all wrong. This is not if the opposites have happened to glory. That's mankind. When you look at another human being, you're not seeing fully what God created. You're seeing the wreckage, the imperfections. And yet Jesus is reconstructing these, this ruined city. And that's what the salvation of Christ is all about. And so Christ uses these terms such as foundations. Luke chapter 8, verse 48 The man he's talking about who trusts in Christ, he says he is, or God, I should say at this point, because they're not fully there, his audience, with who he is. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house, could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Well, that house is me. That is the house that the Holy Spirit enters in and dwells with me there. Ephesians chapter 2, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. When Paul comes along, of course, the church is now alive. But it was not when Christ, he was in the transition stage. He was introducing the concept of the church that would include the Gentiles. And so if you become a slave of Jesus Christ, then you're not a slave of Satan. If you're not a slave of Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not, you're a slave of Satan, whether you believe it or not. And if you are Satan's slave, none of the blessings of Christ apply to you. Only the judgment, the condemnation, the curse, that fig tree. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And then he says, Maranatha, O Lord, come. 
If that sounds harsh to you, it's because you still think Satan is a joke. If those words of Paul sound harsh to you, it's because you do not take Christ seriously. You don't take your own eternal state seriously. Unbelief is what is harsh. Don't blame God because he will not allow those in heaven who will get there and start trouble. And this life is where he filters them out. And we're part of that process. And we're supposed to take any hit that comes our way. Whether it is the decapitation through the sword of Herod. Or some stoning such as they stoned the prophet Zechariah. Whatever it may be. We are supposed to hold to the truth. Because our lives have been adjusted to God. We are his to do as he pleases. And whatever pain may come our way. We face it in Christ. Verse 25 now. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Well, you want to talk about having trust in God? Well, here's what it looks like. You can't receive his grace and not be willing to let it flow through you at the same time. From hell's perspective, whenever we pray, regardless of the position we are in, we are standing We are standing against hell. Ephesians chapter 6, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, verse 14, stand therefore. And so flowing from faith is righteousness, that life adjusted to God's truth. Nowhere does the Bible command us a special posture of prayer, except the posture of a contrite heart. And he says here in verse 25, If you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Um, who thinks God is tolerant of those who are loaded with bitterness towards another? That person is not getting what, what the mission is about. Forgiveness is not always identical to restoration. Just because I forgive someone does not mean the relationship is restored. But if there's no repentance, the restoration is out of the picture. But without maliciousness, that's what Christ is saying. You can, you can forgive without being malicious. And uh, forgiveness lacks malice. Bottom line is not anything profound to say about this. It is something profound to do. An unforgiving spirit is a great hindrance to effective prayer. Peter tried to tell the husbands that. But it's not lim- limited to the husbands. Husbands, likewise, deal with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. And then he goes on to say, and being heirs together. You're both going to heaven, in the ideal situation of two believers, of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. There are rules concerning prayer. And if you don't forgive, the rule is broken. I must not retaliate against some offense. However, however, I am permitted physical self-defense. That is not ruled out. And Jesus said, if he smacks you in the face, turn the other cheek. But if he starts to try to beat you to death, he didn't say, well, go ahead and let him. We can get into that. I'll just take a brief moment here. Um, Here's a commercial on behalf of civil disobedience in the Christian. (laughs) Just because somebody says this is the law doesn't immediately obligate us to bow down to it. And Daniel demonstrated that. Daniel said, that's your law. Here's my law. 
And he opened up his, the door as it was his custom, and, and he prayed. Would have been a problem if he said, well, I'm going to do it today because you made the law. That would have been retaliatory. Uh, it was just not acceptable. He, this is how he did it. And he's not the only one. When midwives were told to kill those baby boys, they said no. They didn't come out and say it like that. They just did it. And so uh, uh, these, these things require that we think through them. He says that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. You know that Greek word there for forgive means to send away. To forgive is to send away. It's to send away the spirit of revenge, of retaliation. It doesn't mean you approve of what's happening. It doesn't even mean you've got to wait for the other one to ask to be forgiven. It does mean that you do not want a bitter root growing up inside of you of resentment. Have you faced resentment? It comes easy to some of us, or let me correct that. It comes easy to some of you. <laughs> it comes easy to me, too, uh, as certain circumstances. God shields us, though. And so, again, just because you forgive doesn't mean in every case that you resume or you restore the relationship. Uh, here's, another, here's an extreme example. A serial killer that goes to jail and becomes a Christian. I didn't think they need to stay in jail. Because, hey, brother, we'll pray with him, but I'm not trusting him in my neighborhood because I understand the powers of temptation and backsliding. <laughs> it's just not worth the effort. But he's forgiven. I even bring him a birthday cake. Uh, I could say that because I've not directly suffered from such a thing, but that's the idea uh, as taught in, as I believe, is even in the Scripture. If um, uh, Verse 26, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Well, that's pretty plain and to the point. But for such an ultimatum to come off the lips of Jesus Christ, there must be some special benefit from forgiving. Some Bible translations try to say, oh, this isn't in the original. Well, yes, it is. You're wrong. They're right. And because it is truth. And there's other reasons, too. But uh, we have to reconsider how we behave when someone does us wrong. We have a right to defend ourselves, but we do not have a right to retaliate. And there is a difference. And uh, Jesus made a whole parable on an unforgiving servant. And we close with this. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And, you know, those who say, well, Mark eleven twenty six doesn't belong in the Bible, they don't say the same thing about Matthew eighteen thirty two that I just read, and it's even more detailed. To harbor resentment, take the picture, a harbor, a safe place for resentment, to exist, you are walking into harm's way with your own walk in Christ. Hebrews twelve fifteen. look carefully 
Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many become defiled. Don't expect help from others when it comes to fighting your bitterness. You have to learn to do it yourself. Others will oftentimes unknowingly contribute to the bitterness. Um, I experienced that a lot as a pastor. It's like, I, I wish they wouldn't say that. <laughs> I wish they wouldn't do that. It's, it's, it's reminding me of something that just makes me want to be bitter. But I don't have the luxury of saying, any, what I have to do is just take the hit. And I'm happy to do so. Because these are the terms that we face and we are not left uh, without an ability to carry out the gospel as it has been laid out to us. Let's pray. Our Father, what I come away with from these words in your scripture is that I am to trust you and that if I am rightly adjusted to you in my heart, I will ask those things that you want and I will be faithful to those things that you allow my performance. It's a very easy lesson to follow. May, uh, may we not lose the simplicity of your teachings because of the complexities of this life. Because of the complicated, sophisticated assaults that are launched against us from hell. And because of the weakness of our own flesh. May you teach us to love and to forgive continuously. May you refresh it in our hearts, those lessons that we've learned long time ago. If you have been listening or watching online or here in the church, and you've not opened your heart to Christ, then as I mentioned in the sermon, the benefits of Christ do not apply to you, but the curses and the judgments do. To overcome that, all you need to do is adjust your heart, adjust your life to Christ, to come to Him, to be His servant, to open your heart and stop fighting against the Holy Spirit who is inviting you to give your life to your Maker, to your Savior. If you make this prayer with me in earnest, God will receive you. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments, and I come to you for forgiveness. There's no other way. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to forgiveness with God except through you. You died on the cross for my sins. And now I come to you, and I ask that you would forgive me. And I give my life to you, and I ask from this day forward that you would be not only the one who saves my soul from a judgment to come, but also the one that rules over my life here and now. And now, Father, if anyone would make, has made that prayer, may with joy they let it be known. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.